The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Hello. Oh. Everyone's uh, hanging in there. Sometimes they, they start to drop off at this time of day. <laughs> a beautiful Saturday like today, so I, I really appreciate your attention and your participation. Uh, we're at our home stretch, and we may, may, may finish a little bit early. Um, we'll see how it goes. Uh, we're planning on finishing by 5, but we may finish at quarter to 5. We'll, um, I mean, there's stuff we've skipped over, which I'll just leave if you want to read that later. But um, when we left our young Buddha, he had just created this sangha, <coughs> and... Um, the uh, in the very beginning of the, the sangha, um, it's thought that most of these uh, uh, the five that uh, he taught were from uh, the Brahmin level of society, although he was from the 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 Kasitya, the the warrior class, and um, within maybe a year or less, there was said to be sixty uh, awakened people. Um, in that area, so people started flocking to the Buddha, and he became—I imagine—he became quite a sensation. And there were a number of other um, rival teachers in those days. And you know, we, when we talked earlier about the Samana tradition, they had uh, different philosophies and different ways of um, of viewing the world, and they would have these debates. Um, and the suttas give these really beautiful. Um, examples of, you know, someone would come to the Buddha and challenge him or, you know, say something um, at times insulting, you know, to him. And, uh, you know, just to see how he worked with it. It's uh, some really interesting stories about that. So after about a, um, let's go back to our map. After about a year, um, they were still in this, this area here. Isipatana, um, there was supposedly 60 uh, arahants, and the Buddha um, asked them to all go, go out. In Sorry, to go out in different directions to um, spread the word of the Dharma and start teaching it. And there's a lot of interesting uh, tales, either in the suttas themselves or in the commentaries. So like for the commentaries, tell us about his two main disciples, Sariputta and uh, Mahamogalana. They were childhood friends, uh, friends since childhood, and they both, um, in their late teens, uh, roughly, they um, they went to uh, you know they didn't have TV in those days, so they would go to carnivals or, or you know at some sort of live entertainment, and the two men were sitting there, you know watching this sh- this show and they were both kind of thinking to themselves is, is this it you know is this is this really fulfilling and they you know they kind of turned to each other and looked at each other and uh, one said to the other you know you don't look well and the other one <laughs> said you don't look well and so they shared what was on their mind which was that they could not uh, sustain their um you know their lives. They they weren't satisfied with just seeking out. You know they were they were fairly well off. They were from this Brahmin class uh, of just seeking out pleasures like like young men uh, do. So they decided to become these samanas, and um, they made a pact that they would um, 
when one of them learned something of value or became awakened, they would go back to the other uh, one and, and share that, and so that they would they would share the journey on the Dharma together. And uh, the I guess it was uh, I think it was Sariputta who encountered um, Asaji. He was one of the five original five ascetics and saw him and saw that there was something different about this guy. He didn't meet the Buddha at that point, but he, he met Asaji and he, you know, he asked him, well, uh, you know, what, what's going on here? You, you look, you know, radiant. And, and um, Asaji said, well, it's, you know, uh, I, I teach the Dhamma um, taught by the Tathagata. And, and being the inquisitive young man, Sariputta says, well, what, what is that Dharma? And Asaji gave, gives this kind of um, inimical answer. He says, well, I'm, I'm not really, I don't know it that well. I'm just kind of new to all of this. But I will say this much, that whatever the, that the Tathagata teaches, whatever has the nature of arising has the nature of passing away. And it was said that, it, just hearing that phrase, um, Sariputta got that first stage, the first stage of awakening. Um, at that moment, and then he went and found his friend, and they both immediately um, came to the to the Buddha to uh, to be his uh, disciples. And he became they became his you know his right and left hand man. And they were you know they give in the suttas um, each of them gives some teachings. There's uh, more given by Sariputta, but they they appear uh, uh, at several places in the suttas. Um, and you'll see in some. Buddhist art, you know, especially some of the Tibetan tankas, there'll be um, these monks on either, two monks, one on either side of the Buddha, and, and oftentimes that's Sariputta. Sometimes it's someone else, but it, oftentimes it's Sariputta and Mahamogalana. Um, so the Sangha developed this uh, model of a classless society. They really kind of didn't want to have this hierarchy, although th- there is a hierarchy based on well, two types of hierarchy in the, in the Sangha that exists to this day, and, and that is when you join. You become, you know, there's a seniority uh, based on that, and also on based on your your level of attainment. You know, whether you know whether you're awakened or what stage you're at. Um, but it really, as far as I can tell, and you know, not having been a monastic, it's um, uh, it is a hierarchy, but it also is, you know, there's there's a real um, it, it had a real different flavor than this um, class that was in existence. Uh, at the time, the social class that I mentioned, in that um, everyone was working to, you know, become liberated, and that um, in the class, the societal classes, there was no mobility. You know, if you were born a Suda, you know, the, the lowest um, level, you stayed that, and if you were born a Brahmin, you, you, you pretty much you stayed that. But uh, the hierarchy in the Sangha was based on your, your, um, basically your ability to to practice and to achieve. Um, awakening, and the um, the the images that we get from the suttas and the, the vinya um, are one of you know just a real um, brotherhood and sisterhood. You know this kind of um, compassionate care for each other, and and you know of course there's all sorts of uh, stories um, that uh, that we encounter, but um, that people really you know there was a student teacher relationship that developed and that um, the Buddha would encourage people to practice and um, a lot of inspiring stories about that. 
there were um, this was a, a wandering group. You know, the Samanas were wanderers, and initially they didn't settle down anywhere. But pretty quickly, you know, there became a lot of them, and um, a lot of wealthy people wanted to kings and and merchants wanted to support the sangha and and you know create a a monastery for them to settle down in. And they uh, one thing they did is they always stayed put for the three months of the rainy season. You know, for those of you who've been to Asia, the, the it rains, you know, like cats and dogs, and it's just floods. And, you know, the, the, having all these people walking about on alms round during that period would be really damaging to the crops and all the little salamanders and insects. So they, they developed this, this style where for three months of every year, and this still takes place today, uh, they would stay put in one area and there would be a lot of teachings. And um, one of the places uh, where that... Um, uh, that we hear a lot in the suttas, where a lot of the suttas take place, is in um, Jetta's Grove in Savati. This um, was a, a piece of land that was purchased by Anatta Pindika. This was a, kind of the main uh, layperson who was a spon- very wealthy merchant who was you know, just in love with the Dharma and a very you know, generous person. So he gave the, the, bought this land for the Buddha. And the Buddha spent you know, probably the last 20 rains retreats of his life there um, living and teaching in and that Savati is uh, right here up here and then another prominent place is Rajagaha these were this is the kingdom of Kosala and this is the kingdom of Magadha and um, Rajagaha which is now modern day Rajagir is was the capital at that time of Magadha and um, there was also, the Buddha spent quite a bit of times there, and there was the bamboo grove uh, there in Rajagaha. Um, and Vulture's Peak, I think, is right outside. And then Nalanda, some of you know, was a famous university. This was after the time of the Buddha, but as Buddhism took hold and really became quite a, a big you know, religion in this area, Nalanda became a very... Um, a famous um, mass, it, the ruins are still there today. They've been exca- partially excavated. Um, massive um, complex of monasteries where people would study the Dharma, practice it, um, and uh, it, it was pretty. Uh, it's it's a pretty amazing uh, ruins. You know, you imagine there was maybe 10,000 monks and nuns living there practicing. Um, we talked about Rahula, the Buddha's son. And there's, the suttas also give us some images on how there was some quarrels and disputes in the Sangha. And that's kind of interesting to see you know, how people who were practicing would um, find you know, bones of contentions to pick. And then they were contrasted with ones who were awakened who really didn't have any argument. You know, they, just, they didn't have that attachment in their mind. So their views you know, weren't... Um, even though they had right view, they weren't, you know, dogmatic that this is this is how it how it is. So now I think we'll move on to the Dharma, and um, we'll go to the book, uh, page three, actually, to the quote there. Would anyone like to read this uh, passage from the Dhammapada on page three? Uh, page three, uh, uh, right after introduction. Just a short. 
doing no evil, engaging in what's skillful, and purifying one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Any comments on that? That's a very famous quote. Um, well, that's a good question. Uh, the, the, um, and it's also lowercase there. Like we, we write Buddha with an uppercase because it's the name of a person, the Buddha. Um, possibly, I mean, I, I, to answer your question, I don't know. But, you know, probably I think I've always thought that that's because um, of this whole belief that there's, um, we didn't read the passage in here, but that there are these cycles of Buddhas that come that appear for a while. Their teachings, exi- the Dharma exists for a while. They create a Sangha and then that dies out. And then there's a period where there's no Dharma on in, in the world. And then there's another Buddha. So this kind of gets to the point that the Buddhas always teach the same thing, the Four Noble Truths, and that's the Dharma. Um, so that, I think that's what that means. So um, I have a question and a comment. I'm imagining the day, and I haven't, I haven't traveled much, but um, I did read a book called I Am That, and I thought that was a Buddhist kind of concept. I don't know who wrote it, or, but one of the things that was... Um, followers were trying to understand is why this person that was giving the teachings was smoking all the time. And so I would have, I'm wondering if Buddha smoked and all these enlightened people did. I don't know what the custom was there and how that was interpreted. So that's one question I have because I have this idea that there, everybody was, so many people were chain smoking all the time. It's part of the culture. I don't know. And then for me, um, as uneducated as I am with this whole thing, I just take the teachings of the Buddha personally. How it works for me is every every moment there can be that concept of Buddha or a person that I see is strange or I may be afraid of or have a reaction to, I can use that as an opportunity to think about and I guess this isn't quite right, but the the concept of Buddha, and you spoke about not consciousness, but that's all I know is the idea of what I interpret this whole thing of Buddha, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, about the question, I think that book, I Am That, um, well, there were two, uh, and these are they're more from the Hindu tradition, Srinar Sargadatta, um, and I, you know, mind you, I haven't studied the, their teachings that much. Just very superficially, I know I know that Srinar Gasadatta was a tobacco vendor in India. He's dead now; He's been dead maybe a couple decades. And I know that I think Sharon and Salzburg and maybe Joseph or someone else studied with him, but he was supposed to be, um, you know, an awakened being, but not, not a Buddhist, or at least I don't think he called himself that. And he smoked. Um, I've heard that Ajahn Chah, he's, you know, one of the Thai forest masters that 
trained Jack Gornfield and Ajahn Sumedho and many of the monastics chewed betel nut. Um, at the time of the Buddha, I don't know if there was uh, smoking. Um, there's certainly there's no talk of it in the suttas about you know that type of what we're used to now with uh, cigarettes and, and all of that. There is um, people were in, uh, drinking intoxicants, you know, like various fermented beverages, I imagine. And um, you know the the Buddha was very clear in a number of passages that that leads away from you know where we're trying to go that it clouds the mind it leads to heedlessness you know it's one it's our fifth precept that we we take you know if you go on retreat or if you take the the five precepts um, so and there's a number of passages that speak to uh, refraining from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind and then lead to you know unskillful behavior basically so. Um, the Sri Nargasadatta and Maharsi, I uh, can't remember the other, they were more Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, which is non-dual. Um, it it kind of has some overlap with Buddhism, and you'll get a lot of teachings in modern-day America that kind of combines Buddhism with, with that, which is a Hindu tradition, you know, that I was talking earlier about this passage from the Upanishad that said, you know, that the Brahman and Atman are one. And that's really the concept that there's 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 no duality between you and me and between you know you and everything else that it's all one. That's not a that's not a Buddhist idea. It's, it's not um, that languaging and that that concept you won't find in the suttas. You know, and there's there's some controversies. Uh, again, Ajahn Jeff has a I think he has an article about um, how you know Buddhism is is not non-dual and and, and Bhikkhu Bodhi also an essay about. Um, how they're, they're different philosophies and how they are, um, I won't say not compatible, but they, they're, um, it's, it's a different way of framing it. But you'll, you'll see a lot, of, uh, a lot of our teachers, you know, some of our teachers at Spirit Rock use non-dual teachings. The um, Tibetan system has really developed that, those teachings a lot. Um, so I'm kind of getting off track here. And your other comment, um, yeah, and you know, the, uh, you didn't use this term, but it kind of gets to Buddha nature. You might hear that term sometimes that, that we all have Buddha nature. Again, that's that's not a term that you'll find in early Buddhism in the suttas. It is it's a later development of um, in the Mahayana one that you know we all have a Buddha nature, and that's just waiting to to be revealed. Um, the closest passage to that in the suttas is, is from the Anguttara Nikaya chapters on the ones where it says something like, um, the mind is illuminous except for visiting defilements. So some people take that to mean that, you know, our minds are brilliant, we're already awakened except for we have these defilements. Defilements are basically greed, hatred, and illusion that, that cloud, you know, and our minds and create all sorts of, you know, create the dukkha, basically. So um, those are those are the thoughts I had on those. Any uh, other comments on this passage, or should we move on? <clears throat> so then, going to page forty-nine, we have um, in the middle of it. I'll just read it. It's a short phrase. Um, both formerly and now, monks, I declare only dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. And as I mentioned earlier, the Buddha kept coming back to, you know, his his core teachings were this, you know, this 
philosophy about this, this Four Noble Truths and then the, the actual practical application of those truths into something that could, could liberate us from the dukkha. All right. Um, I think maybe we'll spend a little time looking at the Noble Eightfold Pathway. We can actually read a passage. So the Noble Eightfold Pathway is um, really elaborated on in many places in the suttas. And um, it's really, you know, as a practitioner, it's really uh, worth getting to know them, you know, and, and if, you, if you decide to practice this, because each one of them has a... Um, uh, I think uh, applicability to our, our, you know, we talked about this mandala or this circle. I like to look at it maybe as a, as a, maybe as a spiral staircase that, you know, um, I think Jeannie said getting wider, but also, you know, maybe getting um, better, you know, not better in the sense of superior, although that language is used in the suttas, but, but getting more efficient, more skillful, less less harmful in our actions. So, okay, let's go to the top of page 58. Um, and here's our Noble Eightfold Path. Starting at the second paragraph, who would like to read that passage on right view? And what, monks, is right view? Knowledge with regard to stress, knowledge with regard to the origination of stress, knowledge with regard to the stopping of stress, knowledge with regard to the way of practice leading to the stopping of stress. This, monks, is called right view. Thank you. So, yeah, basically the Four Noble Truths is right view. And and again, I think it's, um, he says, knowledge with regard to those. And, you know, I think we all have knowledge of what those are. Um, but I think it's really understanding them at a, at a very profound and... and uh, integrated level is that is you know really right view all, for all of these eightfold paths there's the um, this might be getting a little too complicated but there's both the mundane view or the ordinary view and then the view that an awakened person would have that what's sometimes called the supra mundane view and so Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, I don't think I brought the book but he's got a book on the noble eightfold path where he uses passages from the suttas so it's a fantastic book I read it um, over and over again, because it has all of these path factors really um, put out very plainly and um, in a way that's not just for monastics, you know, that that can apply to my life. And um, he says that, uh, you know, uh, there's this difference between the mundane and the super mundane at the, at the, um, in that first sutta we read, the full sutta, the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the Buddha is talking about his supramundane understanding of of right view. You know how he's realized those those knowledges for himself and fully realized them and, and awakened. Um, would like to maybe read the next uh, two or three. And this is beginning. Um, and paid right. resolve. Yes. Okay. And what is right resolve? Being resolved on renunciation, on freedom from ill will, on harmlessness. This is called right resolve. And what is right speech? 
abstaining from lying, abstaining from divisive speech, abstaining from abusive speech, abstaining from idle chatter. This monks is called right speech. And what monks is right action? Abstaining from taking life, abstaining from stealing, abstaining from unchastity. This monks is called right action. And what is right livelihood? There is the case where a disciple of the noble ones, having abandoned dishonest livelihood, keeps his life going with right livelihood. This is called right livelihood. Why don't we stop there? Thank you. Well, that's a lot. Um, we'll take them piece by piece. So right resolve, that's um, Sankapa resolves. That's the way um, Ajahn Jeff is translating this, but it's also sometimes you'll hear right intention. And uh, basically it's the way we... Uh, you know, getting back to this whole intention, you know, and karma being intention, um, it's how we choose to shape our mind. Now, we don't always have control over what we're, how we're thinking or what our thoughts are, but when we can, uh, we can make that choice, um, and it becomes easier the more we do it, uh, the more um, of a habit it becomes. We resolve on renouncing. So the op, op, what we're renouncing um, is like greed, or, you know, being attached to things and wanting them a certain way. So being resolved on renunciation, or we resolved on freedom from ill will. So one of the the defilements is ill will. You know, having anger or, or um, uh, aversion towards someone or something. So part of right resolve, right intention, is to uh, steer the mind away from that to be, um, some would say the, the opposite of that is loving kindness or metta. Um, so that's, uh, that's the opposite of um, ill will or aversion. And then the third one is harmlessness. So um, again, these, what we're looking at here is pairs. Um, oftentimes in other places, the Buddha will state the defi- you know, these things in the negative and then in the positive. But um, the opposite of a harmlessness is being harmful. Uh, sometimes it's translated as cruelty. And so for each of these, it's, that is right resolve is kind of um, seeing when we're attached or we're in a certain way and then uh, switching and changing the mind to be um, the opposite in, in a way that's skillful and non-harming. Any questions or comments on that? Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly, it is the uh, term that's mostly used for renunciation. This is one of the paramis. I think there's two Ks there, Nikama. Um, and I don't know the whole etymology of that, but it, it's basically renouncing or the opposite of Kama, which is sensual, sensual pleasure. So it's, and this is something that's um, very much uh, part of the monastic tradition is you give up your, you know, your, you, you leave your home life and all of the sensual pleasures that we enjoy in our home lives to live this life of, you know, 24-7 uh, spiritual practice. 
And so, you know, very central to that um, practice is renunciation. You know, they are, you know, that's another term for these monks is the renunciate monks and nuns are renunciants. So uh, the way I look at it in, in the context of my own life is to, you know, kind of work with my edge, you know, like I love chocolate and, um, you know, it's sometimes I'll, I'll be attached to, you know, having a piece of chocolate after dinner or whatever. And just to kind of see that and notice that that's not, you know, that's dukkha, that attachment there, you know, whether I get the chocolate or not, there's going to be some sort of, you know, fulfillment or letdown. And then to, you know, to, to see how I get attached to these things and then to renounce them. I mean, there's all different levels of um, renunciation that we can practice in our lay lives here that, that can be skillful. You know, when we go on retreat, we're renouncing, you know, we're becoming monks and nuns in, in essence for a week or, you know, today as a day long. I mean, we're, we're you know, we didn't take any vows today, but we're, we're kind of living here in community and focusing on, on this, you know, particular aspect of, of life and, and the Dharma. Uh, and when we go on residential retreat, it's the same way. We make some renunciations. We, you know, the, you take the five precepts. And so there's there's no killing. There's no stealing. Um, there's no, uh, well, usually there's noble silence, but there's no lying. That's the third precept. Uh, uh, sorry, the third precept is, um, they use the word here. It's coming up chastity, but um, uh, unchastity. They, the other word would be celibacy. So when you go on retreat, you you know, you renounce sexual activity. And um, also the fifth precept is refraining from intoxicants, you know, so you don't, you don't bring a, a fifth of Jack Daniels on retreat. And so it sounds like maybe, maybe an alternate phrasing might be renunciation of the five behaviors Yeah, exactly, yeah. I think what this is getting at, though, in the, the context of this particular passage and other places where right resolve or right intention are discussed is... Um, what is being the opposite of that is um, I can't remember if it's low, which which word they use, but basically uh, greed, um, which encompasses not just greed for material things, but it can also be lust or desire or really wanting. So what you're doing is the opposite of that, and then you know there's two aspects: there's letting go of it, and then kind of stated in the positive is a generosity, and we'll we'll get to this in a later passage. But you know, really, the the entry level teachings that the Buddha would taught to people when they came to him was about dana, you know, about giving and being generous, because in that act, not only does it support the sangha, but it also um, I found for myself it's just opening the heart to you know, all of the fear that I might have about giving, all of the judgments I might have about what who I'm giving it to, and that it, it's a real essential part. We'll read a, a very famous quote here in a minute, but it's a really essential part of the teachings. teachings. So renunciation, uh, sometimes that um, intention there is also uh, translated instead of renunciation as generosity. Any... Uh other questions on that passage? Right speech. Um, so those are the four areas of wrong speech. You abstain for the four areas of wrong speech. So basically lying. Divisive speech is like gossip. It's speech that divides us, you know, like it says. Abusive speech, sometimes called harsh speech. You know, that's when we're really, we say something harsh or, or mean or loudly, aggressively. And then idle chatter um, is also small, sometimes small talk. And really, um, 
these this were these were given to monks you know i think part of our our life is you know our lay life is to is to engage in idle chatter you know to a certain degree you know how's the weather and sports and you know when we catch up on our friends you know how their lives are and this this has meaning f- for us but from the monastic point of view from you know the strictly practice point of view the buddha would say when you get together you should either talk about the dharma discuss the dharma or maintain noble silence this is the, is is what he said to the monks and nuns. Right action. So these are things, you know, we're kind of going from the mind, you know, with view and intention to the speech uh, verbally to now what the body does. So right action. So abstaining from taking life, from stealing and from unchastity. This is again for the monks. And these are three of the five precepts here add the speech and that's the fourth and then what you don't see in this passage is the one about intoxicants like alcohol um, but that that is another suit to passages the um, the unchastity is a part of um, the the really the monastic life is they they take a vow of celibacy you know in addition to the vow of poverty uh, they take a vow of celibacy for uh, lay people there are a separate set of teachings on um, what is skillful sexual conduct, you know, in our relationships. And in the, the third precept for lay people is um, given as um, the phrasing in English is uh, refraining from, how, how is it put, typically um, sexual misconduct sometimes. So, um, and that's spelled out particularly in the time of the Buddha for lay people as having sex with minors or people who are under the protection, someone who's you know, married to uh, another person, you know, just kind of common sense things that are that are probably applicable to our society here. And then maybe there's more also. So that, um, that's that third precept for uh, lay people such as ourselves. Now, this passage on livelihood it doesn't say a whole lot, right? It's just that, the monk abstains from wrong livelihood, and um, so right livelihood is really comes under the the purview of the the, the vinaya. That is, you know, this whole monastic code for the monks and nuns on how to live their lives, and there's very specific details. You know, for example, they go on alms rounds with their bulls, and when they go on alms rounds, they can't hint, they can either verbally or with facial expression. To the person giving to putting the stuff in their bowl on what they what their preference is, you know, like like if somebody's got a big scoop of rice, they're not supposed to say that, or if they've got you know like this nice mango or whatever, then they're not you know. So they, there's a lot of very specific rules on how to um, their livelihood, which is to practice dharma and then to be supported by the um, the lay people, the society there. So that's for um, Monastics, what right livelihood is, and um, for lay people such as ourselves, there's other teachings. It's not in this book, but the, in the Anguttara Nikaya, the, the Buddha gives five livelihoods, five um, basically vocations or jobs that one should not engage in, and they're kind of common sense. Um, sometimes the uh, in some Dharma crowds, they kind of uh, I was at a, I gave a Dharma talk one time and, well, anyways, the five are uh, not to uh, deal in um, living beings, you know, like slaves or animals, uh, 
um, not to uh, deal in meat, so products from, from animals, uh, poisons, intoxicants, and weapons. Yeah, thanks. Um, so those are the five wrong livelihoods, and the right livelihoods would be anything that doesn't in, encompass those. And I would say also that, um, you know, in addition to that, I mean, we can have a, I mean, there's been times in my, my job where I've been, uh, you know, which doesn't involve those things, where I've been very unskillful and very, you know, kind of angry or aggressive or, you know, dismissive and things like that. So that's kind of a higher bar in addition to what's the, the actual teaching of those five livelihoods. But I think for all of us in our livelihood to look at ways to be skillful and non-harming. Any comments on this or questions? Okay. Okay, now here's a... Do we have a brave soul for right effort? This is quite a tongue tongue twister, <laughs> but a very important element of practice. Oh, good. Thank you. And what monks is right effort? There is the case where a monk generates desire, endeavors, activates persistence, upholds and exerts his intent for the sake of the non-arising of evil, unskillful qualities that have not yet arisen. He generates desire, endeavors, activates persistence, upholds and exerts his intent for the sake of the abandonment of evil, unskillful qualities that have arisen. He generates desire, endeavors, activates persistence and upholds and exerts his intent for the sake of the arising of skillful qualities that have not yet arisen. He generates desire, endeavors, activates persistence, upholds and exerts his intent for the maintenance, non-confusion, increase, plenitude, development, and culmination of skillful qualities that have arisen. This, monks, is called right effort. Yeah, thank you. So, um, do you want me to continue with? No, let's just focus because uh, that's a lot there. Let's just go through that briefly, and then um, we'll move on to the mindfulness. Um, the uh, so f- the first one is to, and I'm going to use a little different wording, but to um, for the sake of non-arising of evil and skillful qualities that haven't yet arisen. So, to um, refrain from unskillful states of mind or body, you know. And this this ties in with all the others, you know, that we have to have some discernment here to know what's skillful, and then from that we can then refrain from the arising of unskillful qualities. And the second one is if, if you find, you wake up and suddenly you find yourself engaged in something as unskillful, then to abandon it. Abandon the unskillful uh, mental or physical state that you're in. And then um, the third one is cultivating, I think. Yeah, so you want to cultivate or generate or develop skillful states. And this is that term, a kusala and kusala again. And then the fourth one is if that you are engaged in something that's skillful, then you want to, 
encourage it or um, maintain it or, or further it. Further or... Uh, I think they use the word... They use a lot of words. But yeah, basically you want to bring it to fruition, con- continue to do it. So, that, I mean, it's pretty common sense. Those are the four right efforts to refrain and abandon unskillful states and to um, cultivate and to uh, fully develop skillful ones. And really, this is the heart of practice. I mean, if we do that with our speech, our, our thoughts, and um, our bodies, you know, we're doing the whole eightfold path, you know. And this, this is, but this is really how we train: is we do something unskillful, and sometimes we do it so many times, you know. I mean, some of our habits are really deeply ingrained, and we start to see the harm that's coming to ourselves of others, and then we make some resolve that, oh, okay, I, you know, when I drink alcohol, I say really dumb things, for example. This is a common example. Um, Therefore, I'm going to refrain from it. And maybe it's hard to do initially, but after a while, um, you know, so initially there's drinking and then that's abandoned. And after a while, you know, I don't even go there. It's just, just, you know, too painful, I've I've learned. Or, for example, when I, I find that if I can enter difficult situations, here's an example from my work, if I'm in an encounter with a coworker and I find that we're at odds over something, if I can, instead of, you know, being vehement about my uh, point of view and trying to be, you know, dominant in that situation, if I can relax and try and listen, you know, I'm cultivating a skillful state. Or if I, if I wake up in the middle of, you know, some heated debate and I find that, oh, you know, just automatically I've been kind of saying metta in my mind towards this person rather than, you know, th- rehearsing my next comeback to them, I've been actually saying, you know, may you be kind, you know, may I be happy, may you be safe, you know, whatever that looks like for you. So that would be furthering a skillful state. And, you know, when we do these over and over again, they become really the the inclination of our mind. Um, That's another passage. I don't know if I have it in here, but um, in one sutta, Majjhima Nikaya 19, the Buddha says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination of the mind. And we know that if we, you know, if we're really lost in some dark thoughts and really ruminating on that, we get kind of stuck in that thought world. And if we, as we, you know, a lot of us practice loving kindness metta, that becomes more of a um, of a set point for our mind, more of an inclination. Right mindfulness. Okay. Yes, please. is right mindfulness there is the case where a monk remains focused on the body in and of itself ardent aware and mindful putting away greed and distress with reference to the world he remains focused on feelings in and of themselves ardent aware and mindful putting away greed and distress with reference to the world He remains focused on the mind in and of itself, ardent, aware, and mindful, putting away greed and distress with reference to the world. He remains focused on mental qualities in and of themselves, ardent, aware, and mindful, putting away greed and distress with reference to the world. This, monks, is called right mindfulness. Thank you. 
So um, these are the four establishments of mindfulness, and there are many teachings on these. The most famous is the Satipatthana Sutta, and um, there's, these are uh, basically, um, you know, mindfulness was, I mean, this is a whole separate day long. Actually, it's, it's a, um, quite a study that uh, Bhikkhu, uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Analyo has written a book. I don't think I have it in this stack, but it's on going into detail in the Satipatthana. But this has really become for insight meditation kind of the template um, of uh, practice, and it's also elaborated in the Visuddhimagga. But um, these are the four establishments: so the body, these feelings. This is the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's pretty much the immediate tone we have to any sensory experience we have that we have this kind of um, response within our mind mind states here or chitta mind is um, the different places our minds go in in western psychology as it's trying to translate this into english and to practice sometimes calls this thoughts this category thoughts and feelings but in the way it's taught in the suttas, it's, it's very specific things. It's greed, hatred, and delusion. And the, uh, so my, the mind that's caught in greed, for example, is, is one mind state. The mind that's free from greed is another mind state. And uh, same with delusion and ignorance. And then there's some other ones, concentrated mind and, and awakened mind and, and liberated mind. So they're very specific things um, that you see in the, in the suttas. But I think, you know, the way a lot of people work with them is, you know, being mindful of their mind, you know, in any given moment. Just a, just a thought over the years exploring different uh, things. <laughs> um, whenever um, I try something new like this, it's always captivating and interesting and works nicely. I'm thinking about when I walked on hot coals. Yeah, that was cool. I don't know what that falls under doing that, but it's like a mind trick. And so now I guess my skeptical mind is coming in. I recently um, tried that uh, an exercise where you identify the experiences, either uh, feeling uh, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And I was stunned at at feeling, oh, this is unpleasant. (laughs) Well, then that's gone. And it really did neutralize the little bit of practice. So um, I guess that I just found that interesting. It's like some people do work with this as a psychological kind of... Uh, theme or something. Thank you. Uh, when you said it neutralized that bit of practice, I didn't quite understand. What, um, so what was your experience exactly when you noticed the unpleasant? Or? Well, when I noticed labeling it as unpleasant, for some reason, I don't... I, I, uh, I, uh, it created some space mm. so that it wasn't taken personally. It was just watching it. And so it wasn't aggravating. It was just, I like this and I don't like that. And now let's go to the next thing. And it was no big deal. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that comment. I mean, that that's really our practice in Vipassana, right, is we 
we have these things arise in our bodies and minds and then we, you know, rather than going, oh, my God, and having a reaction. I mean, that uh, in, in reality, we do we react all the time. But the, the model is to let go of that reactivity and to just be there with that sensation and just to know things as they come and go. They're all impermanent. You know, we'll have in any given moment, we'll have so much going on in, in these bodies and minds. I mean, we're just, you know, the, the rate of this, um, for example, the visual field, the rate is somewhere around 5 to 50 events per second. So, in you know, as you're looking up here, your mind is processing data at that rate. I mean, it's phenomenally fast, and there's no way you can, you know, act, you know, for each one of those, there will be some feeling tone associated with it, and then there will be these dominant themes, you know, like if you have a stub your toe, there's, you know, a lot of um, sensations around that, and that will create this unpleasantness. So... As you said, the practice is to just notice that phenomenon, what's happening. This is unpleasant. Um, and sometimes we're not even labeling it. Labeling is very skillful, but sometimes it's, it's just kind of a knowing. And then to have, as soon as it's identified and known, there's the space that's created. And that's why, you know, we always say sit through an itch or if you have, you know, a minor pain, not one that's, you know, like totally racking and is going to cause permanent knee damage to sit through that and to kind of really investigate it, you know, see what the sensations are. Uh, You can deconstruct it into these, you know, okay, uh, sensation coming from knee, um, unpleasant mind is really wanting this to go away, you know, and, and it can be that simple, you know, and it shouldn't be much more complicated because then we get into more uh, kind of rational thinking and, and, and um, you know, thinking about it rather than being mindful and just, and just noticing the experience. So that, that, was, that was great. Um, and these, um, and the breath falls into the body, right? So, you know, a lot of us use the breath as an anchor of our awareness, and that's a body sensation. They become progressively harder in many ways. Um, this, uh, so the, I was going through this list here. The mind are these specific states. And then mental qualities, this is how he's chosen to translate dhammas. Some people will leave this untranslated. And this word is, you know, we've encountered it early, right? Dharma with a capital D, we've been calling the teachings, the Buddha's teachings, or dhamma, dharma or dhamma. That's Pali and dharma is Sanskrit. But dhammas with the little d is, um, and that's the, that's the Pali word that's in the actual sutta passage, is a specific list of things. And um, I don't know, I don't think it goes into what they are here in this passage, but they are basically the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the six sense bases, the seven awakening factors, and the four noble truths. So these are specific, some people will translate dhammas here as, I think Gill uses the term uh, categories of experience, which makes more sense. It's kind of a, a big, long phrase. A lot of people will keep it untranslated, but it means it's very specific thing in other sutta passages we find out. So working with this, you know, the five hindrances, these are, this is really uh, a way to look at our, how our mind is in any moment when we're meditating. And we get, as we meditate, we practice working with those, identifying those, those uh, mental states. Um, the five aggregates we talked about earlier, so breaking our experience. And, and by the way, I, I know this is voluminous. I mean, it's a lot of information. It's not like we have to do all of these all of the time. It's just the, the range of teachings that the Buddha gave, you know, uh, in, under the rubric of the uh, 
the, uh, the four satipatthanas or the four established of a mindful, uh, mindfulness. The sixth sense bases are uh, what we see, you know, our eyes, our ears, our tongues, our nose, our sensations, and our thoughts. Those are the six senses, and each one of those has an object, you know, what you see, what you hear, what you taste, what you feel, the thoughts that you think. So it's understanding those. Um, the seven awakening factors uh, are, um, I guess I'd say, positive states of mind that um, really are, you know, as we meditate and as we develop the pathway, these are uh, qualities of mind that strengthen and that really build on each other and, and help us. And mindfulness is one of them. I, I, I think I'm not going to bombard you with that list. And then the Four Noble Truths we already know. So those are, that's, um, those are all five different categories underneath the, the uh, fourth uh, establishment of mindfulness, mental qualities. Any questions on that? I know that was a kind of a big mouthful. And then um, page 60 is right concentration. Would anyone like to read that? It's uh, the last and the eighth of the Noble Eightfold Path. And what, monks, is right concentration? There is the case where a monk, quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, enters and remains in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by and directed thought and evaluation, with a stilling of directed thoughts and evaluations, He enters and remains in the second jhana. Rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Unification of awareness free from directed thought and evaluation. Internal assurance. With the fading of rapture, he remains equanimous. Mindful and alert and senses pleasure with the body. He enters and remains in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare equanimous and mindful, he has a pleasant abiding. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, as with the earlier disappearance of elation and distress, he enters and remains in the fourth jhana, purity of equanimity and mindfulness, neither pleasure nor pain. This monks is called right concentration. Thank you. So those are the four jhanas we talked about earlier. Are there any questions about those? Meditative absorptions, also called sometimes. Yeah, and I don't know, um, you know, this is the big controversy in practice. You know, here the Buddha is saying, you know, right concentration are the four jhanas, and I think most of us don't experience that level of concentration in our meditation practice, at least not on a daily basis. Um, and Buddhism and the Theravadan lineage um, had uh, developed to the point, um, and I, I, there's some discussion of this even in the Vasudhimaga, that um, this is very hard states to attain and that most meditators aren't able to. But there's there's kind of a, 
I don't know if it's a revolution, but there's a number of practitioners, serious lay and monastic practitioners these days who really um, uh, practice in ways to deliberately um, enhance these, you know, to bring out these um, mental states of concentration. And there's, you know, you can go on, for example, a jhana retreat, or usually they're called concentration retreats um, with various teachers. And again, I mentioned Richard Shankman's book about uh, about that. Uh, the whole. Yeah, may I ask a question about those retreats? Yes. So, do they use different methods to meditate, or what is it that they do that's different from a regular mindfulness retreat? Yeah, thank you. That's a very good question. Um, a lot of them use um, uh, anapanasati, so mindfulness of breathing. But when we do that with Vipassana, the, the instructions are, you know, you put your awareness on the breath. And when the mind, you know, as, as you're getting the mind stabilized and, you, and you, you, you know, you drift off, your awareness drifts off and you start, you know, thinking about lunch or whatever to gently bring it back. So that's the instructions. And then as we develop with the other foundations, so if a feeling arises, we know that experience and then let it go or a thought. So with the concentration practices, what we're doing is we're just staying with that one object, in this case, the breath, let's say. And the mind is, you know, if it drifts off, there's no investigation. There's, there, you know, the way whatever it drifts off to is not known or labeled. It's just brought back immediately to the breath. And this is done over and over again. And then what happens is it becomes more um, focused on the breath and it it's less likely to wander, especially if you have time, you know, like days, weeks to cultivate this. And, and as you practice for a while and the mind just becomes very clear and, and focused. And then eventually what happens, there's, um, you know, this is kind of from the, the sutta, there's, there's bodily sensations and the mind shifts from that object, the breath in, that, in this case, let's say, to the mind itself. Maybe it's turned inward or to the physical sensations, you know, depending on which school you follow. And then um, it's kind of like a positive feedback loop. Like if I hold this microphone up to the speaker, you get that, you know, it really amplifies. That's kind of what's happening in the mind. It gets more and more concentrated. It gets more and more absorbed into itself. And then, you know, various mental and physical things happen. So the most common object of meditation, you know, the nuts and bolts of it is the breath. Some people use the loving kindness phrases. That's common. But in the Visuddhi Magha, I think it gives like 40 different objects that can be used for, for concentration practice. They use, we don't really do this here in the States, but um, what a lot of people use is these little clay discs, colored discs, and you just, you just look at it, just like you're looking at a flame or something. You just look at it to the point where it's just, your mind is just so focused on that color. You know, I don't know if you've ever looked at a flame or, or some object and you just kind of stared at it till you sort of get into this zone, you know, for lack of a better word. And, um, and then at that point with the casinas, you know, you can close your eyes and see like an after image and then focus on that. And it just brings you to these deeper and deeper levels where the mind is pulled off less. It's, it's more, it stays with the object on a, on a more, more solidity. Yes. I hope this isn't off track, but I would be 
interested if you could tell us a little more about the actual physiology of what's happening when um, people go into jhana states. I mean, I, I understand the fundamentals, but organically, what's, what's happening? That's <laughs> a great question. It's being researched. Um, Lee Brasington, who's one of the um, jhana teachers around, he studied with Ayakema, who was this wonderful... German uh, woman who became a nun and um, taught the jhanas. She she really reintroduced them into uh, the Western culture, uh, meditation culture. Um, on his website, there's a lot of interesting stuff on jhanas, and one of them is an article that tries to answer that question that you just asked. And it's a, it's speculation. I don't think there's any data. You know, there's no physical trials. They are studying people who are in jhana states, and these, these Tibetan uh, monks, you may have seen pictures of them wired up to EEGs and then these, these MRI machines. Um, they apparently, they do practice, and I don't know what practices, but their visualization practices, their mantra practices that are very concentrating, and so they, they are, you know, and they've spent um, on the order of, uh, I think it's 20, 30,000 hours meditating over their lifetime. So that's, you know, that's really an expert level. Um, to be an expert, like at a musical instrument, it takes about 10,000 hours or, you know, baseball or whatever it is to, you know, to get that mental, physical coordination. And it's same for meditation. You know, the, the more you do, the better you get. But at certain levels, you, you, you know, I don't know, you hit the zone or something. And these monks are highly evolved in their practice. That's, you know, that's all they've done for decades. And they study their, their physiology. But um, in this paper... Uh, which is, Lee didn't write, but he he um, he kind of gleaned some ideas. He thinks it's the dopaminergic pathway. So there's the four jhanas, and the first jhana it talks about piti or rapture. We didn't use that word. That's um, uh, he believes, and according to this paper, is the dopaminergic pathway. So the, the basically the reward center of the mind. You know, when we I don't know eat chocolate or we buy something or, you know, we have that kind of hit of pleasure from, you know, some experience. He's speculating that that's PT. That's, you know, that's that pleasure. Because PT can be, uh, it's, it's a really like a physical sensation, pleasant sensation. And then, and that's involved in both the first and second jhana. And then in the second jhana is sukha, is a word. So that's sometimes translated as happiness. Uh, PT's rapture um, or, or pleasure and happiness is the second one, and that he's speculating is the um, the opioid receptors, you know, like the endorphins. Now this is all speculate, and it makes sense. I mean, from the physical sensations that one gets in these states, uh, it, it certainly is is possible. How how you can mentally, unconsciously, you know, not deliberately trigger those neural pathways and have them, you know, loop back and become stronger and more intense. And then, tra- you know, what happens with these states is they transition, you know, they're, they're definite transition points from one to the other. Uh, how that happens, I don't think anyone knows, you know, and what, what the exact neural pathways involved are. But maybe someday, you know, with all the study we're doing on it. Yeah, number four is higher. So each each one is is a, is a more concentrated state. There's a passage in the suttas that the 
the um, Buddha says there's um, the amount of concentration the mind can achieve is unlimited, you know, which is kind of hard to fathom, really. Um, and there's also these these four inconjecturables. There, there are things that the Buddhists said were not to be um, pondered upon because the mind would become unhinged. That it, it would lead to total vexation. And there there are things like what's the origin of the universe? What is the capacity of a, of a Buddha's mind? Uh, what's and um, the other one is uh, how karma works. The exact workings out. You know, for example, of your karma. Um, to try and figure out all the little loose threads, you know. And then the final one was, you know, what is the range of a concentrated mind? So um, that kind of gives you a sense of it's just, you know, beyond what we can probably logically comprehend. You know, it's to be experienced, I guess. But the fourth is the highest uh, of the jhanas, and then there's these formless states, which some people call the higher jhanas, eight levels of those, but this is kind of getting a little off off topic. <laughs> Sorry. There's also another author here, in, or teacher in, in the area that I, I want to um, acknowledge, uh, Shayla Catherine, who's written a couple of books. They're, they're, um, they're wonderful books, but they're also, you know, fairly intense, and they deal with concentration, and, you know, she's, she's a real um, expert in this field and teaches it and, and practices it herself and is really one of the um, teachers in our tradition that are on the cutting edge of, of making these practices accessible to people. So actually one of the teachers here too, Andrea Pella. Andrea Pella. Thank you. I'm wondering if these can these are equated with the uh, contemplatives um, like St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross and all those people that entered other states of mind? Yes. Yes? Yeah. um, St. Teresa of Avila, um, I forgot the name of her book, but she talks about these states. The Interior Castle? I think, yeah, and she describes them in different ways, but if you read them, it's the same, you know, it's just different wording, but it's, it's a very similar thing, and I think Meister Eckert might have been another person who wrote about it, but yeah, it's thought that this is not unique to Buddhism. In fact, we learned earlier today the Buddha learned these practices from not you know pre-Buddhist um, teachers of the time, these sramanas who were doing very intense meditative practices. So it's it's just you know a, a normal state of the mind you know that it just takes effort to to develop. And then when people go into these states of mind, do they do they come back with wisdom, or is it simply the pleasure of being there? Um, both and, <laughs> yeah. Um, so the theory, and we kind of saw that in that passage from the Buddha talking about his own enlightenment. The, the theory is that the, the concentration allows the mind to see, to have insight, and that the more concentrated it is, the more uh, the more piercing that insight can be. And really, you know, it's what it what it the insight we're talking about is into the three characteristics to really see those on a very deep, profound level. So um, there are, you know, I suppose there's jhana junkies. I've heard this term before, people who really like the pleasure and, you know, get kind of stuck there. Lee Brasington always says, well, it's kind of a self-writing system that if you 
develop that level of concentration. You might get stuck in it for a while, but you, you develop this wisdom. Or, you know, when you come out of them, you have this insight that those are impermanent states. This is the insight that the Buddha talked about. Um, I don't think we read that passage, but it's in here about how he'd come out of the, um, these jhanas and he would still be experiencing dukkha. And, you know, everyone around him was saying, oh, yeah, these, these, are, these states are it. This is, this is enlightenment. And he'd come out of, you know, he'd achieve them and, you know, have the experience and come out and say, whoa, there's still dukkha here. So he had that insight to know that this was not the path by itself, that there's something more, and that he took, took further effort to find that. As a comment, I'd go back to something that Carolyn said earlier in talking about the Eightfold Noble Path. Many people really do think of it as a, as a continuous process, and so concentration is just one part of this mandala, this circle of practices that are all connected together, and no one of them alone can be the sole focus of a practice that truly brings an end to suffering. So... To me, that notion that we just continue in that kind of spiraling or circling fashion with all of these elements of the path that are interconnected is, is a really important understanding. If we get too hung up on concentration, for example, we're going to be missing um, our connection with the world through right action or you know, some other element of the path. Yeah, thank you. That says it very well. Um, for hearing uh, some descriptions and I don't know what disciplines of some of these altered states, um, I, it, they, they sometimes sound very much like someone who's had a head injury that doesn't have any identity and if they are trying to bathe themselves, they're washing another person or a chair or something. They're just totally in a different space and sometimes that's what I hear about these sacred so I'm just curious if you have a comment on that hmm. or if that if that's just a whole different thing and this kind of group doesn't go there <laughs> well um, I think you know with brain traumatic brain injuries I mean there's specific areas of the brain that are injured and you know there, it's such a, a People who experience that have different ways that it's manifested. Um, I don't think, I don't see a direct correlation with these jhanic states. I mean, they're, they are, as you mentioned, use the term altered states, and I think they, you know, it is different than our ordinary consciousness that we're having here. Um, in the formless states, there's, and mind you, I, I'm not talking from my personal experience, um, but from reading and, and my understanding is that there, the mind goes to places that are not based on the body. So maybe, maybe that's a sense of a, of a brain injury. But I think, I think it's kind of a different paradigm between the two. Okay, another question I had is, is there ever a reference of people going into these states and being unprepared for it and actually having a very traumatic uh, instead of getting all wonderful insights feeling what was that and not having any understanding of it is there any kind of reference for that with these teachings 
Um, that I haven't found anything like that in the suttas. I have um, heard from teachers and from practitioners, and you know, limited amount of my own experience. But yeah, yeah people. You know, I don't want to use this term "have a bad trip," but you know, there are people who um, will be in a, a state of consciousness through meditation that. Um, and, you know, maybe we've all experienced to this certain degree, you know, maybe not in a jhana, but having, you know, just grief come up that's, you know, out of nowhere, that's pretty intense. Um, but in, in these states that, yeah, some, especially in some of the formless states that can, um, Lee Brasington on a retreat I went with him was describing once when, I, I'm not sure if it was the seventh or the eighth jhana, but he just had this profound sense of, Emptiness, not not like in a positive way as the goal, but just this, you know, just kind of the, it, it was a it was a very difficult experience, and he worked on it with his teacher, and you know, and it, it worked out well. But so, yeah, I think some people can have um, unpleasant experiences, um, you know, through the medit, you know, part of this process is a purification. So as we go through it, we will experience a lot of different impermanent mind states. You know, anger can come up, and fear you know, incredible desire and rage and just all these different mind states come and go and they visit us and we can be really uh, knocked off our cushion literally at times from from them. Um, Okay, it's 4.30. Um, So that was right concentration. Um, then there's a couple of odds and ends, and we'll finish with the Metta Sutta. I'd like to read um, on page 61. Uh, we had men- I mentioned this earlier passage about dana. So when a lot of times when people were just starting out, the, you know, the Buddha would give these progressive teachings. You know, somebody had been practicing for a while. They were read- they were ready. He'd give them the Four Noble Truths. But if somebody just came off the street to him and said, you know, hey, I teach me the Dharma. He would talk about um, generosity, uh, or maybe in, in conjunction with ethical conduct. You know, so uh, really have to get those things down before you, uh, you know, in, in this view, before you can move on to the the other the other things. So, does anyone want to read this passage, middle of page sixty-one? I can read. I can read it. If, if beings knew, as I know, the results of giving and sharing. They would not eat without having given, nor would the stain of selfishness overcome their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared, if there were someone to receive their gift. But because beings do not know, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they eat without having given the stain of selfishness overcomes their minds. Any comments on that? I think it just points to how foundational this this um, generosity is to the teachings. And, um, you know, really the, the way the Sangha was set up is that it would be supported. You know, in those days it was, it was not, it was just beginning to be a monetary uh, society, commercial society, but um, you know the the monks wouldn't, they couldn't deal in money. They receive it. They would just receive their food for the day, and in each day they'd have to go out on alms rounds. So, um, really essential element of of sharing. 
think we'll skip um, karma and rebirth. <laughs> Come back to that some other day. Well, there, yeah, I think we have one of our board members is uh, going to <laughs> be uh, giving a day long, not too long from now on that topic. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I think that's a little much. I did teach a, a day long in Sacramento on dependent origination last January, uh, earlier this year, and um, it went really well. I mean, if you have that time to really pull out, the, because there's a lot of terms and concepts and to really kind of go through it. Um, so I think it would be a nice day long for us here. Uh, just a, a few historical points, and then we'll end with the Metta Sutta. So, um, and this is given in a little more detail in the book. So the Buddha taught for 45 years in this region of India. And then um, the, from the Diga Nikaya 16, the Parinibbana Sutta gives an image, um, a lot of vignettes from the last year of his life. Um, there's not a lot of, as I mentioned, historical accountings. You know, we have some stuff early on and we have various um, stories along the way that are sometimes difficult to date what, what part of his life that occurred. But towards the end of his life, we get the picture of, um, you know, a, a very large Sangha. He's the leader of this large Sangha and the Sangha at times is a little um, unruly and diverse. The, you know, I mentioned David Datta had uh, tried to create a schism. There was some other disagreements that happened, you know, while he was still alive in the Sangha. Um, the David Datta tried to kill him. Um, the Buddha saw his two biggest patrons um, come to uh, nefarious ends. The King Bimbisara was one of the kings that um, supported him, and his son uh, Ajitasattu. Um, killed his father and, and assumed the, the throne. And then King Pasenadi, who was another supporter of his, um, also was dethroned from power and, and died, you know, a, a kind of horrible death. Um, the Buddha's homeland, Kapilavastu, was um, sieged and razed and destroyed and the people were murdered, you know. And all of this, you know, as it was coming down, there's some stories in the suttas and the commentaries of, you know, how the Buddha dealt with this, you know, and as far as we can tell, he wasn't attached. You know, he he tried to intervene unsuccessfully, uh, according to the commentaries, in preventing um, the, uh, the the son of King Pisenity, who was the, the king at that time, from sending his troops in to destroy this town and kill, kill the, you know, the, the last kinfolk of the Buddha. Um, Kosala and Magadhi um, were having some border skirmishes, skirmishes and eventually um, Magadhi went on to conquer Kosala. And then um, when we get to the time of Ahsoka, the, that all was under control of, of uh, Magadhi. Uh, King uh, Ashoka was, you know, the emperor really of uh, first emperor of the Indian subcontinent, first of many, done, you know, very bloody uh, by uh, waging war. There's a passage in here, I'll just read it briefly, about how the Buddha is tired and worn out. Uh, Ananda, I am old, worn out, venerable, one who has traversed life's path. Path. I have reached the term of life, which is 80. Just as an old cart is made to go by being held together with straps, so the Tathagata's body is kept going, being strapped up. And um, 
in other suttas we see that he had a he suffered from back pain so sometimes he'd be giving a dharma talk and he'd have to stop in the middle and go lie down and have someone else take over and, and finish the the dharma talk um on page 75 no 74 this is also the passage that we saw at the beginning of the day uh, the Buddha said to Ananda, this is the middle of 74, it may be that you will think the teacher's instruction has ceased now that we have no teacher. This is after he dies. Uh, it, should be, it should not be seen like this, Ananda, for what I have taught and explained to you is the Dhamma and discipline will at my passing be your teacher. So basically, the Vinaya and the Dharma, the Dhamma, uh, you know, those two of the um, Tipitaka will be you know, rather than being a successor, someone who's going to lead the Sangha, uh, you know, people ask why didn't the Buddha's son become this um, takeover or uh, Ananda? And he was very specific that he didn't want, you know, a, a mini-me or a, a Buddha junior, you know, that he wanted, um, you know, the, the, the Sangha had been become to the point now there were all these enlightened ones and they could hold the container collectively as a community and use the teachings and the Vinaya uh, the suttas and the vinya as the the code, you know, how to live life and how to continue, you know, helping people become awakened. And then um, on page 75, does anyone like to read what was um, supposedly the last words of the Buddha before he died? Any volunteers? For this very historical statement. Thank you. Now, now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of the nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. Any thoughts or comments on that passage? Are those befitting words for the last words for a, a great teacher and leader of this new religion? Do they fit in with the Dharma? Yeah. Yeah, it's really talking about impermanence. Um, and, you know, you can look at it like, okay, we have these lives. We don't know. Maybe there's future lives. But, you know, what we know is that we've got to, uh, and whatever that looks like in the context of our own individual lives, we've got to strive. You know, we've got to make some effort. You know, you've all come here today to to study and to practice. And we all have, you know, meditation practices that we do that um, he's kind of advising us to, to not be, rest on our laurels or be lax, but to um, to strive on. So the uh, commentaries um, mention his cause of death was food poisoning, um, perhaps, from a dish called Pig's Delight. I think Stephen Batchelor in his book makes some speculation that, that maybe there was a, this was an assassination um, to get rid of this, you know, this, this, um, Get rid of the Buddha. I don't think there's any strong evidence for that. In the way the the tradition holds it, it was as accidental food poisoning, and the and the Buddha knew that he was going to die. And you know, there's some teachings about that. 
After he died, he was cremated, and his remains, the relics, became, you know, objects of veneration and worship. Um, there were cults that grew around this. There were stupas, and you can still find them today that have relics either of the Buddha or of his disciples, and they were distributed in, in many different at different times throughout history. The first council put the teachings into, and you know, kind of was a cohesive uh, event in the Sangha. And at that point, it seems like the Sangha was pretty much one community. But over time, over the next couple of year, year a uh, couple hundred years, there were schisms that formed. And now, you know, as I mentioned, different schools that developed, and they had different spins on the Dharma. Um, and different ways of focuses of emphasis, different practices. Um, the uh, I mentioned Buddhism uh, went extinct in India, and then now is kind of making a, a, a revival there, and it's starting to spread throughout the world. In our country, we have it contact through Theravadan lineage and Zen and Tibetan primarily, but there's also a lot of Pure Land groups around and other other forms. Chan here in the Bay Area. So that's um, sounds like a kind of a the Buddha's death maybe is a sad <laughs> note to end on. Um, I'll make a couple of recommendations to where to go from here, and then I'd like to read the Metta Sutta in English, and then it just takes about three minutes to play this this it chanted. It's very beautiful. I think you'll like it, and I think that'll be our our. Um, Farewell. Is there is there any last questions about this material or comments anyone would like to make? It's a lot of stuff. Well, uh, would you recommend for? Um, do you have a particular book that you would recommend for starting? Say for some for people that are kind of starting out to explore the suttas? Would you recommend starting with the Majjhima and then, you know, or certain suttas from, from those? Or, the, or are those represented in the ones you chose here? Um, yeah, I, I would say, you know, this book is the, the like, you know, just kind of a very uh, beginning level. But I would recommend, I have a couple of books here. Um, I think the Majjhima Nikaya, even though it's a fantastic volume, for somebody just starting out, is just too daunting. There's no, um, the suttas are just kind of randomly organized and, and you really need a guide. There's a lot out there. I mentioned Gills uh, did a whole year-long class on it. Um, at several points, actually, he's taught this. And those files are available, but that's a huge investment of time. And, it, you know, as I mentioned, showed you earlier, it's, a, it's an enormous book, 152 suttas. I think there's over a 1,000 pages in here. So I wouldn't, you know start this with this, but I would recommend, uh, again, by Bhikkhu Bodhi, this is called In the Buddha's Words, and this is an anthology, so a collection of parts of suttas put together in a very organized fashion with his commentaries on it, tying it together, and and, um, this is a a book that's used, I know it's used in the Spirit Rock uh, Dedicated Practitioners Program, you know, a number of groups have studied this, Bhikkhu Bodhi himself on his website goes through this chapter by chapter, so there's, there's that. Um, if, you, if you're interested in more kind of a historical, kind of a, a good read, a good kind of telling of all of this in a much better way, um, this is an older book called The Life of the Buddha. I think it was written, written in the 60s. 
Biku Nanomoli. And this, the, all of these are in the, um, my references, but the life of the Buddha is, is, it's really a brilliant read. He takes the suttas, the commentaries, and, um, and gives them different voices. So there's a narrator and a, a chanter. So some of the verses are, are, you know, in poem, narrator one and two. And it's, um, uses the Vasudhi Maga and the, the suttas in it, you know, and you know where, where the sources are coming from in their actual passages. So, and it tells the life of the Buddha and the Dharma. So it's, um, this is a, a really highly recommended. And then um, the other thing is we've ha- we have recorded now a lot of Sati Center Daylong. So Richard Shankman has the first three discourses. Um, you know, if you want to hear Stephen Batchelor's secular version of the Buddha's life, you know, you can find that on our website or, or John Peacock. Um, you know, there's a lot of historical stuff in there as well. Gil and Andrea both have uh, day-longs they've taught on individual suttas that are, are very rich. So, you, you know, they have handouts and you can, you know, spend a, spend a day uh, studying those. And I think that's highly um, valuable. So there's a lot of material out there. References are in, in the book. But I would say start with one of those two. Uh, would be, you know, a good way to to go. And don't forget the uh, the women, Buddhist women. And also, just to be fair to Ajahn Jeff, because I've borrowed so heavily, he's got this book called The Wings of Awakening. I don't know, I didn't see any copies, but it's it's a book he offers uh, freely. Sometimes it's, we have it here. Um, but he goes through the whole Dharma and he uses passages and a lot of his commentaries on it. It's a, it's, it's not an easy read, but it's very profound. And, um, every time I stick my nose in this, I get something, you know, very, uh, very pithy out of it. Wings, the wings to awakening by tennis Arobiku. So now in the last few minutes, uh, any, any other comment before we finish up here? Okay. I'm going to read in English, the Metta Sutta, and then I'm going to play, uh, play it chanted. And what I'd invite you to do is, you know, we've had a lot of words and a lot of concepts, and we've kind of been in our heads all day today, but see, maybe you can take this in meditatively, you know, just kind of let the words go in and out. If, you, if it's comfortable for you, you can close your eyes and um, uh, be meditative and... Um, And if you really want to be bold, you could imagine yourself back at the time of the Buddha sitting, you know, in, with the Sangha and the Buddha's, uh, you know, saying these words. And this is Gil Fransdale's translation of the Metta Sutta. It's in the book and it's on, on the IMC uh, website as well. <clears throat> the Karaniya Metta Sutta. To reach the state of peace, one skilled in the good should be capable and upright, straightforward and easy to speak to, gentle and not proud, contented and easily supported, living lightly and with few duties, wise and with the senses calmed, not arrogant and without greed for supporters, and one should not do the least thing that the wise would criticize. One should reflect May all be happy and secure. May all beings be happy at heart. 
All living beings, whether weak or strong, tall, large, medium or short, tiny or big, seen or unseen, near or distant, born or to be born, may they all be happy. Let no one deceive another or despise anyone anywhere. Let no one through anger or aversion wish for others to suffer. As a mother would risk her own life to protect her child, her only child, so toward all beings should one cultivate a boundless heart. With loving kindness for the whole world should one cultivate a boundless heart. Above, below, and all around, without obstruction, without hate, and without ill will, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, whenever one is awake, may one stay with this recollection. This is called a sublime abiding here and now. One who is virtuous, endowed with vision, not taken by views, and having overcome all greed for sensual pleasure, will not be reborn again. Mata yata niyang putang 
आयुषा एक पुत्र मनुरखी एवं पी सब भूतेशु मान संभाव ये अपरिमानं मितंच सब लोकस्मिं मान संभाव ये अपरिमानं उद्धं अदोच तिरियंच असंभादं अवेरं असपत्तं तिट्टं चरं निसिन्नुवा सायानुवा यावतस विगत मितु एतं सतिं अदित्य ब्रह्ममेतं विहारं इदमाहु दित्तिंच अनुपगमसीलवा दस नीन संपन्नु कामेशु विनयगेदं नहीं जातु गपसियं पुनरेतिति। Thank you for your kind attention.